Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour, home of quality interviews for 18 years and counting. We are so pleased you're here today. On this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour, we'll welcome a press agent. Nowadays, they're commonly called publicists, but Dick Gutman is old school. He prefers to be called a press agent, which Webster's Dictionary defines as an agent employed to establish and maintain good public relations through publicity. Well, Paul was very excited to interview this legendary press agent. Dick Gutman's represented some of the biggest names in the entertainment business, a long list which we'll get into in just a moment. Dick's also a man who loves writing and classic movies. These loves, combined with his 60-year career as a press agent, resulted in his book, Star Flacker, Inside the Golden Age of Hollywood. You'll hear from Dick Gutman in just a moment. You know, I must tell you, my treasured listener, it's you that makes the Paul Leslie Hour possible. Yep, people like you. You. You can help us in our work of helping tell the human story by visiting www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. And we thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone who's contributing. Well, I think it's time to start this show. Take it away, Brother Paul. Dick Gutman is the man who joins us. He's a veteran press agent with more than 60 years in the business. Dick Gutman has worked with legends of yesteryear and today, such people as Barbara Streisand, Audrey Hepburn, Gene Hackman, Pierce Brosnan, Clint Eastwood, Cary Grant, Elizabeth Taylor, Warren Beatty, and too many more to list. It is these relationships that inspired his book, Star Flacker, Inside the Golden Age of Hollywood. It's a great pleasure. Hans, a pleasure to, to have the chance to discuss all these things with you and with your, with your audience. I really treasure people who maintain an interest in those films because they're a treasure house of American art. It's just one of the great art farms. It was, the, it was an art farm that America gave to the world. When I say Hollywood... What image do you see in your mind? I don't see a place, although I love the place. I love the place. I see the interconnection. I, I don't know how you see this, but I experience the interconnection of minds. The fact that people in China and in the South America and, and wherever they are can have the same emotional experience. You know, I've, I've seen movies in many parts of the world, and it was incredible how deeply people were into it. I mean, at the beginning of our marriage, my wife and I were quite young, very young, and we were very poor. And we went down, and I, my next film that I was going to be working on as a press agent there wasn't until March. We were married in December. We went down to the south of Spain, where at that time, not very much money, but a long way. And so we were able to sustain the local movie theater, this little town of a thousand people, played all the American films. 
And uh, the first one we saw there was The Road to Bali with Bob Hope and, and Ben Crosby. I just finished a film with Bob Hope in Paris and loved him. They were in the movie, and then they have the first reel, and suddenly there's the sixth reel. <laughs> they didn't file in succession. So I went to the to the uh, projection room, and I said, you know, you just put on the wrong reel. He says, is anybody complaining? He goes, right. They didn't, they didn't care what it was. They loved Bob Hope doing anything at any order. And, and then one time, it was really interesting, that about March, a, a um, Christmas card that Bob sent to me, Finally caught up with this, and uh, I was I'd get my mail in Gibraltar, and I brought it home, and it was a Christmas card of Bob Hope and his family uh, in a sleigh, and Gisela, my wife, and I thought it was sweet, and I put it on the table, and suddenly we hear the, the this girl who was cleaning for us, and she she screams out, "Bobope, Bobope!" Bob Hope was like a god there, and it was a big deal, and they put that in the, the mayor's office because it was the day that Bob, a letter from Bob Hope arrived in Fuenjarola. It's your contention that the golden age of Hollywood ended. When would you say that it ended? There were many decades in it. Each one was different. The 30s and the 40s for sure. They were wonderful. They had a special charm and simplicity. And then I think up through the 60s and the 70s, there was wonderful making extended into the 80s i'd say probably at the end of the 80s and the very strange thing is that the golden age i think the event that ended the golden age was one of the best movies ever made was star wars star wars you know had everything that a movie needed a wonderful narrative great characterization a vivid action but what it also had was the advantage of all these incredible visuals that We'd never had before. And they came at such a reduced cost. And they also provided the opportunity to make the same story over and over again. You know, we'd always had the Thin Man th series. And there were series in Golden Age as well. But this was on a different level. They, they had these very complicated visuals. And they could come up with endless reasons to make have the same kind of visuals over and over again and hollywood was you know was addicted to money why not that's that's what these people essentially at the base make it for it's the artists who want to make great movies you've seen a lot of changes through the years through your experience of being a press agent what was it like when you first started it was camelot it was Camelot. I'm a, I was so lucky that I get engaged so early. I was 19 years old, a student at UCLA in the film school. I had been a journalist all my life. When I was 15, I was writing high school sports for the one of the big Hearst newspapers here. And so those are sort of the two components of my life, my love of film, my love of journalism. And so I get a job. It's a company called Rogers and Cowan. I'd never heard of them. It was a job D delivering things. I had a car. I could make deliveries. I could do the, the 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 daily chores that existed at an office. And so one time I'm making a delivery, and the, the door opens, and it's Kirk Douglas. Why am I? Where's, where's Kirk Douglas? How have I 
joined his life. What is this company? So I got, went back and I started reading all the memos that I was taking from office to office. And I found I'd never heard of public relations, never heard of publicity. And I look at it and I said, well, this is what I was born to do. I have combines the, the, the two main streams of my life. So by the time I was 19, I was learning it daily by now I was engaging myself on what it was they were doing. I saw what came rather easily to me. And when I was, I mean, there, there was one very, very famous press agent there, Ted Loff, who saw in me, I'm, I'm a pretty good writer. And he's, he saw that and he said, you know, you can be very helpful here. We need writing. And he'd give me, he'd give me challenges. I would write stories and he would, in those days, you had a planter, a guy who was on the phone all day calling the different columns. Had a hopper at Luella Parsons, the, the movie industry connected to the world of movie going through these columns that uh, there were, there were, I think, 18 columns in Los Angeles alone. And uh, so I would do this and, and he said, one of the first rules is that you make your break. You have to make your own break. So I was about five months into it, getting sort of bored. And I read one of the memos. It's from one of my bosses, Warren Cowan, to the other boss, Henry Rogers. And they had no, no company in the world of any sort has ever had as many stars as Rogers and Cowan did. And I mean, it was more stars than MGM had. But their biggest star at that moment was a guy named Jack Webb, who had changed television forever with Dragnet and made some good movies. And he, but he was just because he was this agent of change that making television suddenly really compelling, not just the old hop along Cassidy movies, but these really great copy cop films and film noir that uh, he was putting into Dragnet, that they were going to lose him because he had made a movie. His passion was jazz. He had made a movie called Pete Kelly's Blues, good movie, uh, including Peggy Lee and Ella Fitzgerald, all these great jazz musicians, but a good movie. And they didn't have a handle on it. They were getting nothing for it. They were going to lose their biggest client. And so I made a plan of having him do a seminar at UCLA for the music department on jazz, on Kansas City jazz, and having him bring out all these musicians illustrating this syllabus on jazz that I dreamed that he could make, which he did splendidly. So I show it to Ted Loff, and he takes me in to one of the bosses, Warren County, and shows it to him. And Warren County takes me to Henry Rogers, who wasn't very drawn to me. But Warren shows it to him, and Henry says, so you're telling me that you want to turn over our biggest account to the office boy? And Warren says, do you have a better idea? Well, it just works spectacularly, and at the end of the evening – Jack Webb, as we were putting him and the musicians into the bus, turned to my boss and said, Warren, I never thought I'd say this to anyone but a beautiful woman, but you just gave me the greatest night of my life. <laughs> and I was a press agent. Well, how would you say that the world of public relations has changed from those days when you began? Massively, massively. Uh, I mean, th- there's no question that the Internet has changed everything at- I'm still very firmly rooted in my own century, my own millennium. My staff is all young and, you know, has really vital understanding. I had one of the great things that Starflacker did for me is that it encouraged 
Robert Osborne, who we just lost, you know, the, the, the forever host of Turner Classic Movies. My books is dedicated to Robert Osborne because he's he found a way to perpetuate these great films in the heart of moviegoers of, of all ages. I mean, I, last night I turned on and watched Gene Hackman in uh, Night Moves for maybe the eighth time, loving every second of it. And Gene's been my client since uh, French Connection. But Robert invited me to be a guest programmer. No, but no press agent had ever done that. I, it was because of the book. And in the conversation, we, we, he and I had been friends for 40, 50 years. Uh, but it, in the conversation, he said to me at one point, if you were starting over, would you do the same thing again? I'd never asked myself that question. And I was shocked when I got the answer, which was no. I feel that it's the human aspect that has devolved. In the old days, it was so richly human. You dealt on a different basis with the stars. You dealt on a different basis with the with the media. And I love people, and I don't think it's about people anymore. But I lived at the right time. You know, I think everybody should have the luxury as they approach, you know, what eventually is going to be their death, that you can look back and say, I lived at the right time. I did. We're talking with legendary publicist Dick Gutman on this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. You just said it's not about people anymore. What would you say it is about? You know, it's about technology. It's about playing the game. I mean, I'll show you how I, the way I learn things. Uh, one of my friends is Buzz Aldrin, and I always had a rule. A client can become a friend, but a friend can't become a client. I just knew that there's in every relationship you're going to have some tension. I don't want to have something happen that, that didn't go right and it ends a friendship. You know, he was my wife's friend too, and I can't do that to her. But he wrote a book that I thought was really good, and so we did represent him. So his new book was coming out, his new book five years ago, and one of the things I, I had to I had to rejuvenate him. I had to, you know, make him of interest and of awareness to a much wider audience. One of the things I did was we have a very close relationship with Dancing with the Stars. We handle Show Burke and we handle Derek Huff and we've handled, you know, most of the guests that they've had on the show. And so I, it was easy for me to put Buzz on it. It was, you know, like a, a freak guesting. He was, he was there because of his fame. And here you have dancing your floor, the second man to step to the moon, the man who piloted uh, the first craft to land on the moon. We needed to reach that audience. Well, I found out that one of his managers had written a song called Rocket Man that was playing on his website. And so one of the young people on my staff said, why don't you have him record that and we'll get Funny or Die to do that. So I called up the guy at Funny or Die, made a really interesting connection there. And they came out and worked out something where they got Snoop Dogg and Quincy Jones and, uh, and Soldier Boy to be his his uh, coordinators, to, to be his producers on this, to tell them how to do it. And that was all filmed. And it was a sensation. And the book just shot to the, the top of the bestseller list and stayed there for a long time, reaching an audience that I couldn't have imagined. You know, it, was, it was something that was beyond me, but she understood that. I had more fun because uh, my job was basically making people trust me 
creating friendships and then using those friendships to sustain. You know, we, we don't create fame for people. We manage fame. You know, rich people have wealth management. Stars have fame management. And that, that's basically what I do. And I think fame management is, is, is as important as wealth management is. I want to jump back a little bit. Mm-hmm. You were talking about the book being dedicated to Robert Osborne, who we just lost. Right. I am a youngster. So for me, the classic films are very synonymous with TCM, yeah. Turner Classic Movies. Oh, yeah. You dedicate the book to him. So tell us, what kind of man was Robert Osborne? I was trying to define it. Define it. I, he was somebody you trusted. You know, he was a very elegant man. He had enormous knowledge. I mean, I think my knowledge of film is pretty incredible. This was much greater. An example of that was one of the films that they allow you to pick four films that you're going to represent. I chose Bonnie and Clyde because it was one of the first big films that I sort of managed all the publicity and the Oscar campaign on. And Warren, Warren Beatty's been a friend since we were both kids. I've done most of his films, probably all of them. And that was a very exciting film because Jack Warner, he made the film at Warner Brothers. Jack Warner hated that movie. He didn't, he, he had made all the great uh, movies of the, of the crime movies of the thirties, the uh, Jimmy Cagney and Edward G. Robinson films. And this wasn't like it. This was very, very, very different. It was different from all films. And so the, the head of publicity there, Max Burkett, tough guy, but good guy. But his first job was making Jack Warner happy. So Max said, you guys seem to have a fix on this. So he let Warren and me do the campaign. It was really great. So I chose that film. I chose um, Sullivan's Travels because when I when I was a kid and went to Paris looking for work, I happened to court the, the friendship of a director named Preston Sturgis, probably the greatest of all comedy directors who was, had fallen on hard times. I had the pleasure of knowing him. And when I was doing the film with Bob Hope there, I knew that they were looking for a, a, some, a brain character to play this character in the film. And I said to Bob, do you know who Preston Sturgis is? I mean, that was so stupid. I was 22. And he said, do I know Preston Sturgis? I, my office was next to the office he'd been in, and I thought it was one of the great honors of my life. I said, well, I can, you can put your dressing room next to him now. And I got Bob to hire him for this role. And it energized Preston and we got him through his last film. So I, each one of these films I picked meant something to me. One of the others was Love in the Afternoon, which was 1956 film, Gary Cooper, Audrey Hepburn, Marie Chevalier, Billy Wilder film, which was the film I landed on when I went to Paris. And because of it, I sort of grew up on that film and, and I met my wife because of it. And so that film meant a lot to me. But I wanted to talk to Robert about how Billy had, when you see the film, it's a beautiful film, but you can see that Coop is way too old for Audrey. She was 26, he was 56, but he wasn't looking good. And I was very interested in watching on the set because I was, a film student, how Billy Wilder and the cinematographer Bill Miller would light the love scenes. It was always with dark shadows in, in Coop's face. You, you basically couldn't see the features of his face. And so 
I told Robert that that was something I wanted to talk about. And he told me, which I didn't know, that Billy had wanted Cary Grant to do that role, but Cary Grant declined. And so Billy went to to Gary Cooper, but for certain reasons, it was delayed like six months. So by the time they got there, Gary Cooper had cancer, and it was really eating into him. And you could see it in his face, not into his spirit. I mean, he was funny and dignified, all those things. And so they had to they had to light it in a way that they hadn't anticipated his face would be that jagged at that point. It was something I didn't know about the film. I mean, Robert was able to tell me something about a film that was, you know, one of the stepping stones of my life. He was remarkable. Deep human being, sweet, kind, great understanding of film, great emotional contact with the artist. They don't make that. Look, thank God they made one of them, and he was able to help preserve our love for film. Behind every successful man is a woman. You just mentioned your wife and meeting her. Tell us about that, how you met her, and what kind of effect she's had on your life. Well, she's... She's very challenging. Well, she came from, I came from such a middle class American background. I had no tensions in my life. She was born in Germany, in Nazi Germany, and she grew up in the war as a fugitive displaced person. She and her family, basically, her family was a famous inventor. He didn't want to to do business with the Nazis, so he disappeared. And they they had to sort of be in hiding. And all that they could do was basically be itinerant farmhands going. And in those days, the um, the farm countries were very, they hated the people who were, her, her family was aristocratic. They were very hated. So it was a very stressful five years. So her life was nothing like mine. But what happened was, Gary Cooper's press agent was a guy named Arthur Jacobs, very famous, and wound up producing Planet of the Apes and Dr. Doolittle. So he came to Paris because one of his clients was Meryl Monroe was having problems on the film The Prince and the Showgirl. And so he jumped over to, to Paris to see Cooper. And while he was there, he said, you know, I have a film for you in Spain in March. Are you OK? I said, great. And he says, but I have I need a favor. What is the favor? His closest client was David Selznick, did Gone with the Wind, you know, the, the biggest producer in Hollywood. His big client, David's son, Jeff, was in Paris, and he didn't know anything about meeting girls. Well, actually, neither did I, really. But in Paris, it wasn't hard because people would gather in the bars, and you see a pretty girl, and you ask if you could sit down, and you'd get to know somebody. So I said, have him meet me at 8 o'clock on the Boulevard Niche, and I'll... We'll meet somebody. He shows up at 10. There's nobody. Up and down. We walk up and from the Seine, back up to the Jardin de Luxembourg. We, there was nobody. 12 o'clock, two very beautiful blondes sit down at the, the Biarritz restaurant in the slightly outdoor section. And he said, what about them? I said, no, 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 they're not the types. They were existentialists, which means they were sort of cultured and not involved in things like romance. One o'clock, they're still there. So he says, try it. So I go over, give her my best French, and she says, that's okay, you can speak English. She was German, but she'd been an au pair girl in London. 
And so as I'm looking for an opening line, she says, do you see those four men over there? The only other four men and uh, people in the restaurant, one o'clock at night, they have black glasses on and they're looking at us. I said, yeah. She says, they're trying to kidnap us. And I said, well, we'll take you home. Jeff was like a third string defensive tackle. He was sort of out of condition, but he was big. I said, Jeff, when we step, when we get up, you stand as straight as you can. So we, we got them home and then that opened the chance for me to meet her, to get to know her. Wow. That's quite a, you can't, you can't ha- ask for a better, a better deal in faith than that. <laughs> well, do you believe in fate? Yeah, I think I do. Uh, I mean, there's two things I believe in. I believe in Chinese fortune cookies. They always turn out pretty accurate for me. And I believe in confluence when two things come together. And so when I met this girl, as, as far apart as we could be, I mean, it was a billion to one we'd have anything in common. It worked. Energy is sort of engaged. Yeah, I believe in faith. And I actually, I believe that publicity has been my faith. Every good thing that ever happened to me happened because of publicity. So I'm, I'm very happy that I chose this profession. I guess so. <laughs> I think you can feel that. You can feel that in Star Flacker because you can see, you know, it's 670 pages. I just couldn't get it less than that because I work for, you know, 400 superstars and legends. But on every page, there are a couple of laughs. And that's what my life was. You know, when you're working with Peter Ustinov and Tony Randall and James Mason, they're just incredibly witty, funny people. And every day is was filled. I've never had a phone call that wasn't interesting. We're talking with Dick Gutman, legendary Hollywood publicist, author of the book Star Flacker. The book details so many interesting people. A lot of them could be described as legends. Who would you say is the biggest legend among them? Well, that's strange because, I mean, uh, my current clientele con- includes Gene Hackman, Barbara Streisand, and Jay Leno. I mean, they're, they're certainly legends. I think Mickey Rooney was the biggest legend I ever handled. He was a remarkable guy, not the easiest guy to get along with, but he could do anything. His talents were, his energies were incredible. And he was irascible, and I fired him once because he lied to me. A Associated Press called and said, did he get married over the weekend? Mickey, did you get married over the weekend? How dare they say that? No, that was dirty, rotten. And I called back. I said, no, he didn't get married. Well, he got married over the weekend. And I got blackballed from AP for about a month. And I said, Mickey, if you can't tell me the truth, I can't handle you. So I get a call from my wife, and she says, did you fire Mickey Rooney? I said, yes, I did. She said, why did you do it? And I tell her the story. And she said, well, you, you know, he's, you, you've got to make uh, allowances for genius. And I said, well, what, what do you care? This, you know, you don't have to do the, the business with him. I do. She says, well, every day he'll call and he'll say, is Dickie there? And she said, I don't need coffee for the rest of the day. <laughs> but he was, he was a remarkable guy. He was, he was uncontrollable. I mean, there's a story, I don't know if I can say this, but I'll, I'll cut it down. He did a memoir that was went to, I think, number three in the New York Times bestseller list. And in it, he said that he had all the women he had had. He was married to Ava Gardner. 
and but all the women that he'd had relations with, and he was sort of famous for having gone through the whole pool of young w- women at MGM. And so he included among them Lana Turner. So I get a call from Entertainment Tonight, and they said, Lana Turner refutes that and said she was not involved with him. And I call Mickey and said, uh, Lana Turner is, I think you should respond to this. He says, what's she saying? I said, to, and then he said something very vulgar, emphasizing the extent to which they'd had relations. I said, Mickey, you can't say that. I mean, you, you have to be a gentleman. He said, well, what would you say? I said, why don't you say how quickly they forget? He says, that was 50 years ago. I said, Mickey, that's what makes it funny. And I said, well, you put in any damn thing you want. And it picked up everywhere. Everybody <laughs> used that line. But it was it was a joyride. And I've I've never met any actor who didn't. I mean, the actors I represent, Marty Landau, Gene Hackman, Anybody, any actor in the world will tell you they're among the top actors, actors. But Mickey was, you know, he was the biggest star in the world longer than John Wayne was throughout the 30s. And then there was a period that on alternate years, he would be the biggest star. John Wayne would be the biggest star. In Atlanta, there's more and more stars coming out here to film movies. Right. It's been very rare that I have ever been intimidated by anyone I've encountered. But it was a, oh, I don't know, a couple of months ago, and somebody told me, they said, Warren Beatty is coming in here. I said, no, he's not. (laughs) And he came in, and I have to say, it was kind of, I was kind of starstruck a little bit. Well, you should be. I'm starstruck (laughs) when I'm with Warren Beatty. (laughs) There's something about him. Yeah, well, you know, he's incredibly smart. I think probably the three smartest people I've handled, well, Barbara is really, really smart. But among the guys, Merv Griffin was very smart. He was a great businessman. His inspiration was Armand Hammer. And when you go over to the, his office and Armand Hammer's there, everybody whispered. You couldn't disturb them. But Merv was a genius, financially, certainly. And Clint Eastwood is really smart. And Warren is really smart. Those are people who didn't do it by luck, that's for sure. I'm intimidated by the people with whom I'm com- comfortably friends. And each of them has a, With Warren, there's never a casual question. It's always a pop quiz. And that makes it sort of interesting. But but what was interesting on this, he, he called me. I was staying out of the Oscar races this year because I'm, I'm writing a new book and I wanted to focus on and when you're involved in the Oscar campaign that means you have to over the period of three months go to 15 20 screenings of it on various nights I want to spend my time with my wife and I wanted to spend my time writing but he called at one point he said do you want to come aboard the film and I think he, he understood that I, I don't think that they released it very well I have to tell you that was not a film that should have come out in 2400 theaters. It should have come out in two theaters in L.A. and and New York in November, gotten its good reviews, and then come back in in January. But they brought it out, and it wasn't set up to get the kind of audience it should have. And it, 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 hurt, it hurt its Oscar process. It definitely was a film that should have been under consideration. But what I did was I called Turner Classic Movies again, and I said, 
you know, there were only three movies on which the the filmmaker got four nominations for the same film. One of them was Arson Wells for Citizen Kane, and two of them were Warren Beatty for Reds and for Heaven Can Wait. And I want you to show the, the three films on one night dedicated to that strange fact, and I, I think I can get Warren to do the interview. And they did it, even though they had to pay a lot of money to get those films. And I was really happy about that. I'm curious, not just your clients, but just any of your encounters with stars. Who have you been the most intimidated by? Well, you know, I was thinking that. My first star, Kirk Douglas. I was at a party. Harvey Weinstein had a big party for, I think it was Penelope Cruz for Maria Cristina Barcelona, whatever it was called. And at that party were every beautiful woman in Hollywood there was that just so it was at Soma Hayek's house. It was just amazing that how much beauty was there. Among them, Catherine Zeta-Jones. And I worked with Michael Douglas. I worked with Mike Douglas, the host, of the, the talk show host. But I, I handled Michael, and I did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest Farm, and I also did China Syndrome Farm. But we handled him when he was a kid for Streets of San Francisco. So he and I are waiting for our car at the same time. I say, you know, Michael, I'm doing a memoir. I was, I was still writing Star Flacker then. And he said, oh, that's great. You knew everybody. And I said, well, the, the amazing thing to me is the guy who impressed me more than anyone was your dad. Because he was just so courageous and so determined. And he said, yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. How do I come out? I said, you come out okay. But it was true. I didn't realize until I was writing. I was never a friend. I was a kid, really, when he was making um, Spartacus. I came up with some ideas that he liked, and but I was around a guy who had a big star career, and he hired, as did Otto Preminger at the same time, he hired Dalton Trumbo, who was the most notorious, let's say, of the uh, of the blacklisted writers, and he risked, Kirk risked everything, all the farms of his future, on that casting, and the film. And, and let go a very fine director so he, because he could bring Kubrick in to, to do it. And the film opened and it didn't do very well. And for him, that was a terrible loss because he was trying to prove a point. And he says, we're bringing it out again. We're going to have a second distribution a month or so later. And we had to justify that. And he did. But his determination was so exciting, you know, and as a person, it was wonderful to be around because his wit and his fervor were so intense. He was about as cuddly as a cactus. You know, you couldn't wrap your arms around him. But he sure impressed me. And it's amazing he was the guy that sort of opened the door, in effect, to what I did for my life. You've been at this for all of your life. Yeah. What qualities in yourself do you think have led to your endurance in the career of public relations? Well... I have a I have a really good sense of craft. I'm dyslexic, so I, I can't make notes. So the, in the book, you'll find all the conversations. When you're hearing Cary Grant and, and Star Flacker, you know it's Cary Grant. You can hear that he said those words. And because I can't write notes that I can read, that's a terrible thing to have when you're, particularly if you're a journalist. I had to remember everything. And so I could remember conversations verbatim. 
it gave me a, a really strong focus on the moment, which I think is something you need for success and everything. And I have a really good sense of humor, and I really appreciate other people's sense of humor. You know, the, the chance to have worked with Tony Randall and Peter Usnoff in the same lifetime. <laughs> you know, you're not going to find two wittier people in your every anywhere. I mean, that what a, a, a grace that is. I think my sense of humor was important. I think it was important that I understood journalism because I worked with journalists and they appreciated that I could do what they did. I'm always looking for creative ideas and I trust my ideas and pursue them. I think those are that's what helped me through. And then also I'm honest. I think people have a sense of that, that uh, there's a lot of things. I mean, as you know from the book, it, it's really great. You meet these people and and love them, but there's nothing in it that I that's scandalous. I I can't do that. But I've all my life I've um, I've been worthy of trust. I know a lot of secrets about people that I've never told even to my wife. You know, one of my rules is that a secret is something one person knows. So I think those are the things that help me. I think my clients my clients stayed with me. You know, Gene and, and Warren. Jay and Barbara, you know, decades. Warren and Jane, five decades. And I don't want to congratulate myself. I think I've had, I've also been sort of, um, I'm not fixated on things. I, I'm, I'm able to to dodge and weave. If I were a boxer, I think I, my footwork would be pretty good. We've had some very legendary names who have joined us on this show and many, many more legendary names who declined. <laughs> so I have to ask, because I will tell the listeners this, this was years ago, and I don't know if you remember it. I know you said you had a great memory. Yeah. One of my favorite declined interview answers came from you. <laughs> from me? So, yes. Was I at least cordial? That's why it was my favorite. I thought, okay. gosh. Who was the person? <laughs> I was trying to interview Barbara Streisand. This morning, I've already sent out three I'm terribly sorry, but to, to to people, Barbara doesn't do interviews. You know what? Every fame is very different for the, for some people. You seek publicity. Barbara's at a level of, of stature that uh, first place is she has so many activities. She's, you know, preparing three films and she is finishing her book and there's her charities. I mean, she has literally changed the world for women who have heart problems uh, she found out a friend of hers died who was um, from a heart attack. And she found out from a very famous doctor, Caesar Sinai, that women, more women die of heart attacks than of any other disease, more than all the other cancers put together. And the reason is that heart has always been studied on men. You know, the classic thing is, oh, grab your chest. Oh, my, I have a pain, a pain in my left arm. That's what a heart attack is. Not for a woman. For a woman, it's being nauseous or uh, being faint. It's a lot of different things. There, you know, people have to understand there are two different physiologies between men and women. And so it was explained to her. And, 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 and the, the problem was that all these things that were learned of studying heart, men's heart problems didn't apply to women. And women, where they're going, we're basically going unassisted by medicine. And the funny thing is that that was 
called, not because of Barbara, it was called the Yentl effect. Because in Yentl, she had to pretend to be a, a boy to go, be able to go to school. And then in, in heart disease, treatment of heart disease, they were getting treatment that were adopted for men. And so she's started the Barbara Streisand Women's Heart Center there, brought in tens and tens of millions of dollars, contributed tens of millions of dollars. And that's something that occupies her. And she's, I mean, if you go, whatever your politics are, you know, Barbara's very famously liberal, but she has two recent, she blogs on, um, on Huffington Post. If you go there and just put in Barbara Streisand, you'll see some of the, most cogent interpretation of what's happening in our politics today. I mean, I think she's, she and, and Rachel Maddow are like two of the leading people leading the charge to make sure that people are taken care of. Anyway, that, that's just, those are where, that's where her heart is. That's where her time is. And the fact is that she, she doesn't do interviews very often. She has, she has a, a memoir coming out this, this year. I'll be surprised if she does four interviews. But, but again, she doesn't have to because there's, you know, as I said, we do fame management. One of the ways that you manage fame is when somebody has so much that it's almost too much, you don't add to it. So I'm sorry if I, <laughs> if I spoiled your dream, but it's very hard. Like I said, it was one of my favorite declined interviews just because you said no, but I walked away from it feeling good. <laughs> but what's something about Barbara Streisand we would be surprised to know? Well, I have something in the book. The first chapter of Starflacker is sort of an introduction to what it is I do, but also to the fact that I've learned something from everybody. And I've learned something from every client, every client. Peter Usnoff, I was doing a lot of interviews with him one day. I said, I'm sorry that we're doing all these interviews, but it's your book. And he said, oh, on the contrary, I enjoy doing interviews. I said, you're kidding. He says, no, I find out what I think about things. He said, people ask me a question hmm. I never addressed before. Like Robert Osborne asking me if I'd go back into the into the same field. And he said, I learned something different. Well, for every client I had that who was tentative about doing interviews, I told him the Peter Ustinov story. I said, just get in there. It's a conversation. Listen, and you'll find out what you think about things. So uh, that was with Peter. With Barbara, I learned the truth. You know, press agents, particularly from the time when I started, we got imaginative. Barbara, nothing can be in that that isn't the truth. And there was a while. There's you know, every few years. There, Every year, there's a, a book comes out, an unauthorized biography of her, usually as far from the truth as you can get. Things made up and perpetuating old untruths of the past. And for a while there, we were, we started a thing called Truth Alert, where we'd point these things out. And then we found out it didn't make any difference because it would get a little flurry and then it'd be gone. And so we didn't. So there's one book came out and had a lot of things that were wrong. And I said, is there anything there you want me to correct? She said, only one. I said, really? What, what is that one thing? She says, well, in it, they said that my stepfather beat me. I said, well, Barbie, you know, people are quite aware of the fact that your stepfather was cruel to you. She said, yes, but he never beat me. I want that clarified. To me, that's character. Yeah, big time. Do you think that some stars take themselves too seriously? In a way, they're obliged to. I think Gene Hapman quit 
because he was tired of having to take himself seriously. You, you are obliged to because you're always measuring yourself. Don't forget, in any field, this is maybe the only field in the world where every time someone else gets a job, it's a insult to you. I had Rip Torn on. I made the mistake of putting him on with Rip's a very you know, colorful personality. And I thought he might be OK with Howard Stern. So Howard Stern said very rudely, he says, you know, Rip, you're married to Geraldine Page, one of the greatest actresses. And she was accorded, you know, all that. She was at the highest level. He said, did it ever bother you that she did better than you? And Rip said, Actually, and this may come as a surprise to you, we were never up for the same role. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it really put Howard Stern in his place. But in effect, most actors are up against other people for the same role. And I mean, that's a fact. You know, if I, if I go after a client, actually, I don't go after clients anymore. I've, I have the clients that I want. But for a long time, when I was building my business, I did. My, my staff bring in all these wonderful young clients. And when I was doing it, I always knew that they were meeting with five other agencies. And so if they didn't go with me, then I basically failed whatever the audition was. But but that you have to be happy when you have your fair share. But no, I I think that they have to take their that they have to have a manager, they have to have a press agent. Well, that that means you have to take yourself seriously. Your life as a star flacker or a press agent, what would you say the biggest lesson you've learned from that experience? Well, it's interesting because the book I'm writing now are the lessons I learned. If you read the book, Star Flacker, 670 pages, sorry, of really interesting anecdotes. And in, in a, inside of most of those anecdotes, there's some rule that I've observed that they illustrate something. So that's a book about interesting stories with a few rules involved. The new book is a book about rules with a few stories involved. And so I've been analyzing, I mean, I have hundreds of rules. It's called, it's about persuasion. I think what I do is persuasion. That's what everybody does. You know, there's, you can't go through a day without having to try to persuade someone five times. And I observed people who are good at it and people who are bad at it. So I learned the rules. But I think that the main rule I learned, it was one I came to on my own, was that a problem is a solution in disguise. If you have a problem, if you turn it inside out, it's the solution. Because problems are negative. Negative force is compelling force. People are drawn to things that are negative. And so if you can use that that energy that brings them to it and turn it inside out and then explode a different attitude. I had a really top director call me last week. She had made a film in Poland. This guy in Poland was, you know, had the money to make the movie, but he wasn't a professional like she was used to working. And he was just really tough on her and he wanted to recut the film and, and he did a terrible story in one of the trade papers about how she had, Goof this film. Well, she was somebody who had directed actors to Academy nominations. She was very, very respected, is very respected. And so a friend of hers called and said, would you call her and, and see if you can help her? And so she called and I said, Martha, I, 
here's here's why I want you to understand. You and I look at it this at this differently. You're concerned that you might be injured by this, and I look at it as an opportunity to sell your movie. She said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Look, this guy had this terrible story for you. It hasn't cost you a job. Who, who in this town is going to believe some guy who's you know an interloper comes in, makes a movie because he happens to have the money? They know you're a great filmmaker. I look at it as a possible negative force that we can create some attention to this film that it wouldn't get, and maybe we'll get you a, a, a distribution. So if you if you look at it that way, you don't." You don't come up and start fighting a fight you don't need to fight. You take that energy, use that. It's like Tai Chi. You never exert yourself on Tai Chi. You let the other guy exert himself, and then you send him rushing out through the wall because you caught him off balance. Publicity is a lot like Tai Chi. <laughs> Interesting. I'm going to kind of leave with a, a, an open-ended question. Okay, I like those. Just to give you the stage. For anyone listening, they could be in their car, they could be listening on an iPhone, on the radio. What would you say to the people who are tuned in? It's a good piece of advice, something that I would put in this new book, that you look, you learn to make peace and not war. You know, if 10 times a day you'll be invited to make war, somebody does something that. So my, my perfect example is, my marriage. I mean, we've been married now for 60 years and we're very vital people. I explained, you know, the circumstances of her childhood. It wasn't easy. It made her a very intense personality, very intense, which I love intense personalities. And because we're so different, there's a lot of times that we have conflict over something. And I've never had a fight with her where we didn't end it with a laugh. And either one of us will come up with something funny, the other one will just start laughing. It's just things that she says that, that make me that make me laugh. It's terrific. You you can't you can't ask for more than that. So look for look for the laughter. You know, I was I'm pretty good at it because I worked I handled probably a hundred of the top comedians. Uh, Milton Berle certainly very important among them, and Milton. Had he was very famous. Uh, you're, I'm sure your audience is, is not old enough to remember. Milton Berle owned the world in the 1950s. He was his television show made television. He was called Mr. Television. Wednesday night, whenever the show on, movie theaters closed, restaurants closed, people were home watching it. But one of, part of his shtick was that he stole jokes and that he had this filing cabinet full of other people's jokes. Well, so the event happened that he was in a plane, that something was happening. They had to make an emergency landing. They had to fly around over New York and New Jersey for four hours to get rid of the gas before they tried this landing. And Milton had taken over the mic and entertained people for four hours. And, you know, it was was a, a big gift that he gave. And the New York Daily News, for, for the Sunday News, they wanted a double truck, I mean, two-page byline story by him about this, about the uh, this occasion. And so I go over to his office, and sure enough, there's the filing cabinet, and his his assistant, as one of his writers, is going through it looking for jokes, and he's telling me this different stuff. I say, you know, Milton, all the jokes you're giving me are 
not related to the, the situation of being in an airplane and the imminence of death and all of that. And I, I said, I need something like that. And he says, like what? I said, well, when you were doing this, there was something that annoyed you. What was it? He said, this kid, he was running up and down the, the aisles and he was just creating havoc and stepping on all my, my laugh lines. And I said, and you said to him, he says, what do you mean? I said, what did you say to him? I said, he says, I said, kid, sit down. I said, no. What did you say to him that was funny? He says, what? And I said, did you say to him, kid, go play outside? He said, what? I said, did you say, kid, go play outside? He said, outside was 30,000 feet over by New Jersey. <clears throat> I said, well, that's what makes it funny. And he says, no. So we got another hour. He says, I, I think you got it. And I said, I still don't have that big laugh on the thing. And so Milton says to his writer, Phil, what was that joke that I had? What was that joke that I said? And he says, Milty, what you said was, kid, go play outside. That is what you said to the kid. And Milton said, yeah, that's good. Go with that. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, we've been joined by legendary Hollywood publicist, or as he likes to say, press agent or flack, Dick Gutman. He's also the author of Star Flacker. Inside the Golden Age of Hollywood. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank My you. last question. Uh-huh. Who is Dick Gutman? I think he's pretty much the guy in the book. I mean, I'm, I'm very much, I very much treasure my faults. I have a lot of them. I'm just a guy who really had what it took to do, lead a particular life that he fell into. I have a tremendous sense of good fortune. I mean, I have the good fortune of finding my wife and, and managing to contain life's little troubles within a little package of our marriage. I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm actually pretty easygoing. I don't aggravate myself over things that I can't do anything about. But I actually don't ignore things that I should be able to do something about. Hmm. But, you know, I, when I wrote the book, it was a problem because... I had all these experiences. What I wrote, what's in the book is only half of what I wrote. I had to cut it down. I mean, it's ridiculous to put out a book of 670 pages. And in, in fact, I couldn't get a publisher because of that. If your name is Leo Tolstoy, maybe they'll put out your book of 900 pages. I think I made the best of it. And, and it meant that, you know, I, I don't, I don't have it in bookstores. It, it pains me that bookstores are dying, but they are, I think, it's a different age now. People buy – my book is – Star Factor is only available on, on Amazon. But And and I keep trying – it's $23, which I thought was a reasonable price for 670 pages, which is basically three books. I recently said to him, you know, you've had it at the same price. Bring it down. You bring everybody else's books down 20% or something. Bring it down so people can afford it. I mean, you can get it for like 9 bucks in the Kindle. They took it down 5% and then they put it back up. And I just figured, well, that's how books are sold now. I'm pretty easygoing, even though I'm excitable. Anyone who wants more information, they can visit the website, starflacker.com. Special thanks to Lori Puzon. I hope I'm saying that right. Yeah, Lori Puzon, yeah. Puzon. And, of course, you, Dick Gutman. Thank you for joining us. Paul, it was really a pleasure. You've just proved Peter Houston off right.
If I, I mean, I found out what I think about myself. I never thought of that before. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks so much, and I hope our paths cross again. I'm sure they will. I'll find a good reason. Don't count on <laughs> it being in the in the in the form of a Barbara Streisand interview. I I know that uh, she'll, they'll be few and far between because she's in the middle of doing so many other things, and she really puts a lot of her life into her activism. She has a great concern about what's happening in America, but also she found a very important way of life and what she does for women and trying to bring real scientific knowledge to the treatment of women's heart disease. One more thing. I'm just curious. Do you know very well Lawrence Grobel, who interviewed her in great detail? Well, you know, I'm trying to think. Larry's book, which is very, very complimentary to her, that wasn't based on an interview he did with her. That was things that he brought together. But it was a very, very positive book about her. Do I, I think I know Larry Grable from from other things. I can't remember if they were. I've handled so many people for so long. I seem to have touched everybody's life somewhere. I'm not going to face this. That's the, the terrible thing. And I'm, the terrible thing is I can't remember people who worked for me. And we were at some press event, and I said to Rona Manash, one of the people of my staff, I said, that woman over there who's smoking all the time, I know her from somewhere. I just feel I know her from somewhere. And Rona said, maybe that's because until yesterday she worked for you. Oh, gosh. That was terrible. <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> well, I didn't, I felt bad about it, but I tell people I'm not, I'm just not good with faces. But if you said something funny, I'll remember it. But I, I really enjoy this, Paul. It's a good interviewer, and, and it was fun, and it was instructive. I did find out things. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. My pleasure. Talk to you soon, and I wish your your audience well, a good day, and and all kinds of wonderful things. I enjoyed a lot of wonderful things. I, I would like everybody to be that fortunate. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, the entertainer. Written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour. <laughs>